I'll be the difference. Difference they need me to be. Difference I'm needing to see. My follow, I'm taking the lead. I'll be the difference. Difference they need me to be. Difference they need me to see. My follow, I'm taking the lead. I'll be the difference. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Richardson, and I'm executive director of California Groundbreakers. Many of you know about California Groundbreakers because of the live events we did, panels, Q&As, conversations about what's new, innovative, and groundbreaking here in the Golden State. Now, the coronavirus has changed all that, obviously, with the emphasis on social distancing. So we moved over to doing these conversations and QAs in podcast form, focusing on what the new normal is in California, both now during the shutdown and what the future may look like. But unless you've been living under a rock or avoided all the news since Memorial Day, you've heard about and maybe have even seen the video of the death of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis, the worldwide protests that happened right after that, and the conversations it has brought up since then about all aspects of society and how we live our lives and how things really need to change. I think we can all say that 2020 has been a hell of a year and it's only half over. But June was a particularly hard month with a law of raw emotion. We can all remember our experiences watching George Floyd's death caught on video and the protest on the streets. For me, I remember sitting on my sofa here in Sacramento at nights during the curfew that the city put in place, feeling shock, horror, fear, despair, loss of hope, all at the same time. And with so much happening at once and so many feelings we were all experiencing at once, I just couldn't think about New Normal podcasts because, well, of how far we were from any kind of normal. So I think like many, I just read the news the social media posts, watch the videos, try to follow along with what was happening, and find out what people wanted to happen in terms of making real change, systemic change in law enforcement, criminal justice, economic opportunities, equity, education, social change, and lots, lots more. And one thing I learned when I was reading all the news and watching all the videos that I found very heartening and really inspiring was the outpouring across racial support for Black Lives Matter demonstrations, as well as the number of young people who were leading these demonstrations, young leaders and activists who were standing up, speaking out, and being very specific and clear about what they wanted to happen. And those two factors, at least for me, feel like there is a new awakening in American society and hopefully something that will lead to true systemic change. So we are doing podcasts again, conversations focus on what systemic change looks like, particularly here in California, in the wake of George Floyd's death. And we're putting together conversations with some of those young leaders who've galvanized others by speaking out, leading the demonstrations and campaigns, and quote-unquote veteran activists, seasoned decision makers who've been working on race equity, uh, criminal justice, police reform issues for most or all of those, those careers. So today's conversation is specifically focused on, on policing, uh, police reform, something that has obviously been discussed a lot in the past month. And we've got two people who have given a lot of thought lately about the current state of law enforcement and what should be done to reform it and even reshape it. So I have with us, first off, Stevante Clark. He is a human rights activist here in Sacramento who just started an organization called I Am SAC Foundation which could be short for Sacramento, but it's also the initials of his brother, Stefan Alonso Clark, who we know of. Uh, he was killed by the police two years ago, a little bit over two years ago today in Sacramento. And Bob Harrison is also with us. He was a police officer for 30 years. He was the chief of police for Vacaville, which is just uh, down the road from Sacramento. And he currently does strategy planning and training for police agencies here in California and nationwide. Thank you both, Stevante and Bob, for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it, Vanessa. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. So I have a question for each of you uh, first off, um, and then I have questions for both of you, but I also wanted to have um, you know, this to be a dialogue, a conversation between the three of us and have you ask questions of each other. So uh, that's the format that we're going to aim to go for today. Stevante, I, I, first question is for you. You've been a public figure since uh, your brother Stefan's death a little over two years ago. And back then, I remember reading a lot about you, uh, seeing videos of you, and noting, noting that you were really open and showing your grief and your emotions. And then now you're in the news because you were a very public figure during the George Floyd uh, protests and demonstrations in Sacramento, and, uh, and really standing out for uh, telling people uh, to protest peacefully and not, uh, not be violent, not cause destruction. Um, 
And a lot of that has got you uh, attention. I, I know one of the articles I read about you uh, during this time was in the Los Angeles Times, and there was a great profile of you, and that was last month. One thing I noted about that was a quote of you saying, passion without direction is chaos. And it feels like now that the passion that you have is um, being steered into the I Am SAC Foundation. I'm reading a lot about that. So I wanted to, I guess, get an overview of you about what, what you have learned in the past two years and change, you know, what, what you've experienced and how that passion that you felt then, you know, you're giving a new direction with I Am SAC Foundation and other efforts. It's oh, a great question. That was that was a really good uh, first question. You Thank know, you. I, I wish I would have read that email in its entirety. <laughs> so that was a really good question. And one thing I've learned for sure after the death of my brother is if you don't have a price, you have an agenda. Few people, very few people that I've met are willing to pay the price for their agenda. You know, people, some people don't, and don't understand what the price is and what the agenda is. The price is how, how, how much are you willing to take? How much are you willing to say, okay, this is what, this is the price that has been paid. This is it. I'm good. The agenda is what do you want? How far will you go? I remember seeing Oprah, you know, she left her television show. And then after that, she started her own network. And she said, this is my next chapter, my own network. You know, I took over television. Now I'm on my, you know, and what I learned is that most people will come with me with um, agendas and whatnot, but they won't uh, come in being um, fully transparent with their prices. And um, during my brother's situation, it kind of uh, affected my mental health in a negative way. When I say passion without direction is chaos, that was because I was my grief was public, but... Um, the thing, what happened in my grandmother's backyard should have never happened. And yes, my grief was public and it was kind of wild. And I jumped on the mayor's dais and I went on CNN and had some interviews that, that weren't um, family friendly for television. And, you know, um, I went to jail. I was in a mental institution for a few times. Uh, you know, I paid a price for my agenda for I Am SAC Foundation. My passion was not directed in, in any way, um, shape, or form because I was so angry. There's power in anger, but, I, you know, the righteous anger was there, but at the same time, you know, when my passion got directed, I was able to fulfill my purpose, you know, and articulate the message that I needed to articulate when it comes to community sustainability and intellectual independence. You know, that's all I want at the end of the day, and justice and accountability. And the reason I created I Am SAC Foundation is because I realized that people listen to you more clearly when you have the paperwork in, when you have the paperwork, in, when you have, you know, um, the dot com, the dot orgs and, and whatnot. So now that my passion is directed, the legacy of Stefan Clark will live on for generations after you and I have left this earth. And not only that, but um, I'm not slowing down anytime soon. So, yeah, you know, but uh, it's love. It's real love. It's real love. The love that we're, we're receiving now, it wasn't like this two years ago when my brother died. You know, people were judging me for how I reacted to the death of my brother in my backyard. They called me a crisis actor. They said I was on drugs. Some people said the wrong brother died. Um, I was caught, my manhood was caught out. Um, I had assassination attempts on my life. My phone, my phones were um, um, hacked into broken into. Uh, my family was followed. My grandmother's house was um, um, surrounded with media for three, three weeks straight, four weeks straight. Um, we couldn't watch TV because every time we turned on the television, they were playing the death of my brother. That affected my mental health. The cops lied on my brother. They said he had a crowbar, a toolbar, a gun, and he ended up having a cell phone. Cops um, um, did not promote transparency when they muted their body cameras. Um, it was, you know, the cops are still working the street patrolling neighborhoods. So even though we're, we're doing this work, a lot of that stuff um, affected my mental health. And well, that's why you see my grief in such a, in such a, um, uh, a not normal, I would say, or 
in a way that was not um, it's not used to being seen. You know, because everybody gets a chance to grieve when their loved one dies privately and whatnot. Our family had to grieve publicly. You know, we had to everything everything that I've done since the death of my brother has been on some media aspect. And we did not ask for this. We we are not reality stars, we are not famous musicians, we are not NBA players. We are the uh, the family of a martyr inshallah, a prophet, if you ask me, Stefan Clark. I compare this family to a royal family like Queen Elizabeth's family. And I compare uh, Trayvon Martin's family to the royal family. I compare Emmett Till's family to those of royal blood because Emmett Till, Trayvon Martin, Stephon Clark, they are our prophets. They are our martyrs. Those are people who we take in for our cause in the black community, in the underdeserved, underrepresented, at-risk community. Those are ours. Those are our symbols of change and a better tomorrow and hope and resource centers and recreational museum libraries for these babies. And, you know, adequate, 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 adequate healthcare for our people because we're being denied that. We're being, um, all we, we're asking, we're not asking for much. We're just asking for affordable transitional housing. We're asking for universal basic income. We want to make some money, you know, be able to live. We're asking for a lot, but 20 shots in my grandmother's backyard where I'm sitting at right now, it's not the only thing that killed my brother, you know, and a system that's built on oppression and is not, you know, a system that feels like police protect property, not people. That's what it feels like in these communities, a system that feels broken. So the 20 shots are not the only thing that killed Stefan Clark. Many things play part in the death of my brother, the environment, you know, the oppression, the mental, I mean, the jails that he was locked in, those, those jails did not help my brother. When you go to jail, you're supposed to be rehabilitated. They made it worse, you know, so we have a lot of work to do. I'm going to work on this for the rest of my life. One thing I learned is passion without direction is chaos, and passion with direction is, passion with direction is purpose. And if you don't have a price, you have an agenda. And before I forget, what is the website for uh, I Am SAC Foundation? So we can put it on the, on the link for the podcast. Oh, it's IamSACFoundation.com. Okay. Dot com. Okay. Thanks, Devante. And Bob, I have a question for you. You're coming in as a former police officer, like we said up top, a former police chief, and now you're researching, you're a researcher and trainer in the law enforcement field. I was wondering, since the death of George Floyd and the, and the global attention surrounding it, what are you telling police departments now that you, that you train and work with to consider? What are they focusing on most right now? Right, right. Uh, before I, and certainly I'll address the question, question, because I think that's probably the top question on people's minds. How are the police responding? What do the police think? Uh, there's a lot of mythology. Uh, and, and I'll deal with kind of like what I believe is happening, the things that I'm seeing, you know, things people are saying. Uh, before I respond, though, and, and, and listening, uh, watching Stefante, uh, I, I share as much as possible a sense of grief at their tragedy. I think that uh, Families do, and he's right, unless you pay a price, you don't have an agenda, unless you invest in the solutions from your own experience, from the tragedy. I, a great sense of empathy, uh, my condolence to Stevante and his family. I mean, it is a tragedy. Yeah. No matter what the circumstance, it's a tragedy that, of course, you know, Stevante had nothing to do with the direct incident, but is going to suffer the consequences. And his ability to deal with it as he has, I think is really admirable. I mean, I think it's, it's one of these necessary things, as is this conversation that probably wouldn't have occurred absent George Floyd. I mean, it does open the opportunities. So yes. to sort of the question, and, and first, in, uh, as, as people look at the police, sometimes because they look at the military or they look at Congress or they look at other large systems, they kind of view it as a monolith, like it's the police. There's 15,000 different police departments in the U.S. In California, there's in excess of 500 police agencies. East with their own city councils, their own civil service commissions, many with their own newspapers, uh, cities with their own cultures, you know, some really good, some very toxic cultures and communities themselves, that the police do in many ways reflect what the majority of a community might feel is appropriate, and quite often to the detriment of people who are vulnerable, uh, first-generation immigrants, people who live on the fringes, people that sincerely don't have access to fresh food, 
They don't have access to adequate schools. They don't have access to a means to pay their utility bills, things like that. So as we deal with it, understanding that as people listening, their police department, in fact, may be one where the community and the community of all colors has great confidence in it because they're doing a number of things that establish the relationships that create the confidence that generate the trust. Where when they see something happen, it's like, yeah, I'm not quite sure. If the community looks at that and says, you know, that's an exception to what they usually do, and I know they're going to take care of it, and they're going to be open and transparent when they do, and I'm going to know what they did about it. If, in fact, they look at it as uh, people did with Rodney King. I mean, I worked in South Los Angeles for three years, the start of my career. Uh, I understood what they said when uh, people in South LA, when they saw the King video, said, that's what we've been saying. That's what we're telling you. That's what goes on. And I think people seeing that firsthand, really, certainly at that time, you know, created uh, not enough momentum as we're seeing now, but created momentum for sincere change. And LAPD has, and has a distance to go, as do we all, but, but has done a number of things in the wake of that. Chief Bratton in LA uh, tried to institute a number of programs. We have to talk about the culture of policing and how that differs. But as we look at that, uh, it means that all policing, like all politics, is local. And so Stefante's work will inevitably affect Sacramento PD with Chief Han and others thinking, how do we respond to this? How do we create confidence? I do think, though, that uh, there's a need for larger elements of effort that focus at the regional and state level that create incentives for the police to do the kinds of things people see as beneficial and then to sanction or disallow the things that, that I think uh, are systemic, if nothing else. Uh, quite often, they arise because individual officers respond to circumstances with a wide variance rather than having clear policies and clear protocols. And in a lot of ways, too, what I think people have started to realize is the police don't spend much time on training because their staffing is low, the call for service volume is very high, there's, I mean, you just can't stop the temporal surge of what goes on in the streets. Say, okay, let's do a stand down for a month and fix things like you might be able to do with a military unit. So I think that one of those areas that dedicating more and more effective time to training, more importantly than that, though, I think it is kind of a reconceptualization of when we're say policing, and I always resist the term law enforcement. Uh, law enforcement is a function of policing. It's a minor function. It's the one that gets the most attention. I think that uh, community building is really the, the top function of police work itself. I think that as we create tranquility in the home, and, and I was a big advocate, and as Vanessa knows, and the agency that I was chief, we actually had up to a dozen uh, clinical social workers and mental health counselors on staff to deal with families and deal with child abuse, domestic violence, deal with elder abuse and deal with neighborhood issues. We had mediators on staff. If you can have tranquil- That was during your time as, that was during your time as chief of police in Vacaville? That was correct. Okay. And then, and from that you get peaceful neighborhoods. As you have peaceful neighborhoods, you develop quality in the community. We worked with the schools, we worked with civic organizations. And, and I think the police as facilitator of safety play a really important role but as the pure deliverer of safety, if people merely lay back and say, well, if something bad happens, I'll call 911 and cops will fix whatever it is, I think it's a misapprehension. And that's exacerbated by peeling away and defunding mental health, defunding community organizations, defunding the kinds of things that are the glue that hold people together, and then just you know, dumping it down on the police. You know, many of whom will say, yeah, someone's gotta go, someone has to try to solve the problem, but as we see, and I think with a mental health issue especially, I have yet to talk to a police chief who isn't completely happy about being able to move mental health services away from a primary police response into trained professionals who can deal with a wide variety of issues. So that's one example where I think that the police are willing participants. Uh, the Pew Research Institute just published a study that showed uh, you know, well over 70% of people want to maintain or increase police funding. Uh, even in the black community, you have uh, you know, well over half, almost 60% say, no, the police need to be there. And I think anybody who lives 
in South LA or East LA, anybody. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think people are when they when they when I when they hear when they say um, defund mm-hmm. the police. All they're saying, I think, is uh, reallocating yeah. the resources. There's no reason they need those tanks going out there. Yeah. There's no reason Vacaville PD needs to riot yeah. gear. Nothing's going on in, in Vacaville where you need tanks and you know, all types of riot gear and all that stuff. That 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 is you know that is a waste of resources that could be spent on resource centers and museums and libraries to commemorate legacies like stuff. Yeah, I, and, and I don't disagree. I mean, I think that uh, the the presentation of a, of a military look for the police, and, and I'm doing work right now on protest policing, you know, some of the eras of, of, of negotiated management, kind of a scaled and graded response. Now there is, and, you know, it's one of my, the issues I talk about with the police is regionalizing and consolidating like special weapons, tactical, you know, those units are sadly and unfortunately necessary at times. If they are regionalized and highly trained, the more training a unit like that has, the less force they use. They have greater levels of confidence. They identify issues quickly. They, in fact, can prevent tragic outcomes more often than you know, necessarily using the weapons they have. With protest policing, and I think that's uh, where Stavanti and I probably agree fully, uh, you know, I lived through uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, I, I actually participated in Vietnam War protests. Uh, you know, I, I've seen the protest movements, the post-King protests. There's a discomfort in now also having been on a police protest line with the U.S.-South Africa Davis Cup tournament years ago during apartheid. And be having a chance to talk to people to understand their perspectives is really, it humanizes everyone involved. And I think as the police can respond effectively, and, you know, those who, and I think with some of the Black Lives Matter protests, there are groups, and you hate to say left and right, there are groups at the anarchist fringes that try to capture any narrative. And so those who merely want to burn something down, hurt people, create destruction, are very different from the core message, which I think is a fantastic message of a necessity to serve all people. Yeah. It, it does. It draws yeah. attention. There's always that kind of tension. We need to be loud and noisy enough for people to listen to us, but not to a point yeah. to where the vulnerable are hurt. And that's you know, I, the tragedy for me in Minneapolis and other places. Yeah. These people yeah. are already suffering. Yeah. You know, they don't have mm-hmm. economic. They don't have anything. It's like, mm-hmm. what about yeah. them? I mean, that's who's important. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the, the protest thing with the looters and all that, the rioting yeah. and all that. Everybody keeps saying riots and all that. You know, the looting is, I, I can understand the, net, the looting is uh, unacceptable. And um, uh, we have to understand mm-hmm. that even though um, it feels like in our communities, police sometimes protect yeah. property, not people. You have to understand that um, Walmart and Macy's and all these people that have been um, looted against, they, they can get all that stuff back. All that stuff coming yes. right back. But what we can get back is the riot that happened in Oklahoma. When you talk about Greenwood and Black mm-hmm. Wall Street, how over 300 black people were left murdered and um, 10,000 left homeless. Yes. You know, I'm, able, I'm willing to meet halfway with you, Chief Bob. I'm willing, I'm willing to say, look, we can meet halfway, but I ain't going too much and I ain't letting you come over too much. We can meet halfway and we can find out how we bridge the gap. If we, have, if we can agree to disagree without being disagreeable, that's fine. That's fine, you know, but at the end of the day, I, you know, I... I I, I like police. I love police. You know, everybody love everybody. Because, you know, if somebody is something happened to my grandmama, I'm not finna call the Crips or the Bloods. I'm gonna call damn it, whoever the hell I gotta call. Now, with that being said, if I can't call you guys because I'm afraid that if I call you guys, you guys might come kill my ass, we might have to start our own de-escalation tactical teams that can replace you and be the middleman to meet me in the middle. Because what our community has we don't have our own de-escalation tactical teams that people that could de-escalate that we feel safe with. You know, we don't feel safe when we're calling you guys to be our de-escalation teams because we know that even though you, it says protect and serve, it doesn't feel like you protect and serve. You know, it, with the feeling is different from the the, the, the message, the talking points. Mm-hmm. Because if things were um, where they're supposed to be, if, mm-hmm. if Chief Bob, if you are doing a great, excellent, which I believe you are in Vacaville, I don't hear nothing in Vacaville. But if you, your buddies, were doing a great job universally, and me and our, and us in the community were doing a great job universally, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have Stefan Clark's. You wouldn't have mm-hmm. George Zimmerman's. 
you, would, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have um, Eric Garner's or, or George uh, Floyd's, you know, because right. it'll be a connection. It'll be, we would know each other. We'll say, oh, that's Officer Bob in the community. He always come down here with the apples and shit. I mean, excuse yes. me, French. Sorry. That's okay. Um, this, the, you know, I have a sex six program. And number one on my sex six program is bridge the gap between law enforcement and that mm-hmm. community. But I don't believe we could bridge the gap between law enforcement and risk community. If us as a community don't hold ourselves accountable and bridge the gap between community, us as a community have to get back to potlucks and mm-hmm. block parties and, 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 you know, and the police have to be able to come and not be in their um, tactical gear looking like they're ready to go to Vietnam. Right, right. You see, no, I mean? agree. I, I agree fully. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, other thing- than that, I believe one thing- oh yeah. Say that Vanessa. <laughs> no, I, I, I wanted to ask, cause there was one thing I did want to ask um, about, uh, Stevante and something that you were really uh, influential in, and it seems like again California and its groundbreaking uh, mm-hmm. role uh, uh, did this, and it's the use of force law that passed. Mm-hmm. I guess the Assembly Bill that passed yeah. last year, mm-hmm. right? right? And that was um, a direct. I feel like it was a direct um, uh, thing leading from um, Stefan Clark's death mm-hmm. so for those though who's, who don't know just a little summary it's a uh, it's a, a assembly bill something or other but it's use of force law that was basically known yeah, as 392. and it creates 392. What, 392 and it creates what some consider one of the nation's toughest standards for when law enforcement officers can use use of force um mm-hmm. uh, including you know using a gun and fatalities. I think, Stevante, I read that you said it, it, it doesn't go far enough. It was kind of watered down. So I wanted to ask both of you, I wanted to start with you, Stevante, then, you know, Bob, what's your take on the use of force of law? Like, how does it improve things and where did it not go far enough? Well, it didn't go far enough because, goddamn it, people are still dying, okay? So it didn't go far enough. Because it went far enough, it, I wouldn't be talking to you, Okay. I would literally not be talking to you if it went far enough. They done took the teeth out of it. Um, you know, they, they, they gave us SB 230, which said police need more training, which they do need more training. But police need more connections and networks need to be out there in the community. If I, if I put a list of five hip-hop artists that are current in the times of the community, like Pop Smoke, mm-hmm. Rich the Kid, I don't know, Quavo, um, uh, who else, uh, Jada Youngin, and Lil Dirk. I guarantee you Chief Bob don't know who the hell I just talked about, right? Right, Chief. A smattering of I don't. Okay. Right, yes. <laughs> Look, Chief, what I'm saying is, you know, these are the type of kids. I mean, these are the type of influences that the kids are listening to in the community. Right. This is what right. again. This is their CNN. This is their Fox News. This is their MSNBC. Mm-hmm. So if we don't even know how they're getting their sources and where they're getting their, their you know, what I mean, their ideas from, if we're not tapped right. in, the kids will call it tapped in. If you if yes. you know how to connect with me, Chief Bob, they will say, okay, Chief Bob, tapped in. Because, you know, yes. you know that, that's, that's the language they use. Right, it's right. like in law enforcement, you guys have your own language, you know? Yes. And, 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 and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a complex language. But, you know, in the community, the underserved community, same exact thing. I think you know that. Mm-hmm. You've, been, mm-hmm. you've been around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think for the AB 392, the language was kind of fiddled with in a way yes. where it's a good start because it's Stephon Clark law, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's a good start, but... I always say slow progress is better than no progress when it comes to these types of bills. Right, because right. It changes the standard from reasonable to necessary. What does that mean is, is the question mm-hmm. now. What does reasonable mm-hmm. and necessary mean? If I'm afraid for my right. life, is it reasonable for me to retaliate or is it necessary for me to retaliate? That is the question we have to ponder. Now we have to define right. the definition of reasonable, the definition of necessary. Now right. we can literally break those words down into micro words in a way or just, just break them down in little pieces. And yes, and I think that that's a conversation we should have had as soon as we got AB three ninety two passed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a conversation that we need to have if we're going to take this model, this model to a national level. I believe mm-hmm. this. You know, when uh, California coughs, the rest of America sneezes. Now, the, the way I think we could get this done in a way where I think it's a meaningful change is we take something like AB three ninety two, Stefan Clark's law, and it's already there, so we. Can't Keep that how it is. But we take the influences that we have. Like, we have influences with um, Kim Kardashian, which is saying my brother's name and, and all that. And she has influences in the White House and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But we connect Kim Kardashian with Governor Gavin Newsom because I'm, I'm good friends with the governor as well. And Kim, like I said, Kim just reached out. 
we connect those two and see how they can make something to send to the White House to um, promote accountability on a national level. We send a message. We send a message from here in California on how to get things done. For right now, we just need to leave with the message. Slow progress is better than no progress. This this bill, AB 392, it hasn't been updated since 1872. That's eight years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And, and you can't remember, you can't forget that in these communities, it feel like um, 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 that, this, that the police come from slave catchers. That's what, that's what we feel. We feel like the police come from institutions of slave catchers. And that's not all true for all police departments across the country, but it's true for a lot of them. So we, we need to be very um, aware of what we're doing and how we're moving when it comes to accountability and transformative and restorative justice. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers podcast. We're working on more New Normal in California podcasts literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreakers supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast hub page or on the Donate tab on the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. And then before Bob, you answer, I'm going to tack on an extra question, Devante, if you want to uh, answer this, and then Bob, you can answer both. Uh, so, you know, what's happening now, I was just seeing that our Attorney General, Javier Becerra, came out with some recommendations about what to do. Uh, and Savante, we're on video, so he's shaking his head. You're, are they not going far he enough? What are, you, what are your thoughts about that? He has failed miserably. Xavier, Becerra, Becerra, Becerra. Becerra? Becerra, thank you. He has failed miserably. And, you know, he, he could do all these things. He can go try to go fight against Paul Blanco Car Company. But he can't hold two killer cops accountable who are running through my grandma, other grandmother's backyards, you know, terrorizing other communities. It's unacceptable. The, the attorney general, the district attorney, and the chief all together failed. The attorney general comes out with these recommendations on how the second phase, he called it, the second phase. It, it, it's a bunch of malarkey. It's unacceptable. You know, he, he needs to be held accountable as well. I want him to be recalled as well because Xavier has, you know, he has, um, it's obvious that he has chose popularity, popularity over people. He's not, I don't, I don't think he's focused on profit. I think he's made enough, but I think he's focused on popularity because every time it's something when it comes to George, why are you coming out with the second phase right after the blood of George Floyd? You know, why is a district attorney receiving $13,000 of money from police unions days after the death of Stephon Clark? These people need to be held accountable. The, the Xavier has failed, does not represent the fights and the rights and the causes of the state of California. And District Attorney Anne-Marie Carol Bassett-Schubert does not represent the fights, rights, and causes of the people. We need accountability on not some levels, but all levels. For Xavier to try to capitalize off the death of George Floyd is unacceptable. He tried to capitalize. He, he, that's what he did. He tried to get, he tried to go, he waited until the protest kind of eased up. Then he went out here with his BS second phase, which won't get nothing done. It'll, people will it doesn't, it doesn't do nothing. Sacramento Police Department hasn't even implemented Stephon Clark Law into its own police department. This is the police department that killed my brother. So, you know, I don't know. For me, it feels like the attorney general has put popularity over people and the district attorney has put profit over people. And the chief, Danny Boy, he has put politics over people. All these people need to be held accountable. The chief, Cricket District Attorney and the capitalizer, Xavier Bacara, Becerra, Bacara, Sarah, whatever. Sarah. So, Bob, what are your thoughts in terms of what the legislat- legislature <laughs> has done, yeah. what the Attorney General is wanting, you know, suggesting to be done? What's your thoughts? Yeah, and, and a lot of layers, as Stefante, you know, referred to. Uh, one issue in question, I know that the, the National Democratic Party has urged candidates not to take donations from police unions because of that very issue. I would expand that. Uh, I'm going to go off road just a little bit to firefighter and teacher unions. I think that as uh, public unions donate to 
political entities or political causes, inevitably there's, even if it's not true at all, the optics of it are, well, they're bought and paid for, or they're donating so they get this, they get that. Uh, I know that police chiefs themselves would be in favor of disciplinary reform. Uh, I think that being able to identify and redirect and train, and then inevitably at some point, you know, remove from the for someone who isn't doing policing as policing should be done is something that I believe all police chiefs would like to have. I mean, there's always that tension and balance of an employee's rights and, you know, rights as a human being and rights to employment and, and all of that. But I think being able to take the politics out of it and the political donations out of it would be useful for all Californians, certainly not you know, just for this issue. Uh, with regard to Shirley Weber's law, uh, I, I live in San Diego, so I'm familiar with it at its outset and the issues locally here. She's your assembly uh, rep yes. member. That's amazing. Yes. And, and so, you know, thinking about from reasonable to necessary, you know, I applaud the sentiment behind and would completely agree with Stefante that some progress is better than none because of Stefan's law. It allowed some things now to happen because the groundwork was set. So we're not at you know the starting blocks. We're you know partway down the track. Uh, and then in some sense, you know, as we the more you pull this apart, the less meaning it has. So if we get down to the little micro words and the things like that, sometimes we lose you know the the forest for the trees. That with the police use of force and you know understanding that constitutionally police are the only constitutional body created that can actually use coercion as a legal tool, which means that they should be held to a higher standard, they should be trained to higher standards, they should really, uh, and you can go back, the first mention of the police, I'm like a history person, uh, it was in Aristotle, uh, or in, actually in Plato's Republic, where they talked about the guardians of the city, mm -hmm. they said one of the most important attributes they should possess is to be lovers of wisdom, because without wisdom, they won't know friend from foe. And you start thinking about that, and it really is moving from more of a warrior mindset to much more of a guardian mindset. So when we talk about, you know, a use of force itself, whether it's a minor use of force or certainly, you know, a lethal encounter, it's not so much the type or severity of force. I mean, people focus a lot about what did they use, what happened as a result, as it is its purpose and timing. Now, if I were with somebody and they were going to be arrested and this could devolve into a fist fight and then he tries to disarm me and horrible things happen, if I can use the most important weapon I have, which is my mouth, which is an extension of the most important attribute I have is between my ears, uh, more often than not, I get people to cooperate even in something they may not like or enjoy and going to jail is not an enjoyable experience at all, certainly. But to give them a sense of wholeness, to give them respect, to be able to explain to them, hey, here's what I'm going to do, here's what it means, you know, we'll go to court from here. I think if people gain, and this is part of the procedural justice, uh, you know, framework, one thing missing, and, and I really think it's critical, I wanted to mention, is empathy. And I would say not certainly like police feeling sorry for the community or the community feeling sorry for how horrible and tough policing is, but to really understand and respect that people do have different viewpoints and they have them for very, very legitimate reasons that if they disagree, that doesn't mean they're a bad person or they don't know things that as the police can empathize with the people they serve, I think they treat them more wholly and more fully which is what we want. I mean, you know, we do experience like the everyday horrors of, of you know, the tragedy of humanity. It doesn't mean that that gives us an excuse to, to act poorly, to use excessive force, things like that. So I think that as you look at any particular thing, it is part of a larger whole. It's part of a system. And to create true change, you need to address the system in play. And, and I think that does get, it's a, you know, community policing, actually, if you go back to the, the original root words, community and police come from the same word. Ooh. So, Ooh. I just say policing. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it, we're, they're both polis. Actually, politics comes from it, too, so we don't mention <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, we're talking about the <laughs> poll. But I think that if you, and as, and as a police chief, uh, it's my job. I need to know the faith community, the civic community. I need to know the voices that aren't being heard. But is it, true, but is it true, Chief, that the average time for a 
police chief is like five years. It usually is three to five years, and uh, it it could be longer. But uh, you know, that's kind of the, the psychic injury of being a police chief. <laughs> Why is that? Why is the tenure so short? Well, is it just the it, stress it, and pressure. It, 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 and a 30-year career takes some time to get there. Now, there are some alternatives on lateral entry into management positions from other professions that we see in the UK and others. Uh, I think that, uh, and, and it's not something I always enjoyed dealing with the community, even dealing with the community when they weren't happy, because I had an opportunity to talk to them, to let them humanize me, and we could talk about the issues, because it's like the Stavante and I. If we sat over lunch, we could probably find like 80 things we agree on. Yeah. Except for sports teams, since he's from Northern California. So I'm going to like the Lakers. He's going to like the Kings. So, you know, things yeah, like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, oh, God, I did a, I did a, actually did a Kings joke when I was in Northern California once. Uh-oh. And they did very well. Yeah. And I think it, yeah, I, I, you know, it comes from, and it's an interest-based negotiation. We think, okay, what do we offer? Are you agree on? We want people to be whole. We want their stuff to be safe so it's there when they get home. We want their children to be able to go yes. to school without being shot at. We want people to be treated with respect, even if, you know, I mean, as, as a cop, and I, you know, I've made several thousand arrests and tickets and things, so I have plenty of experience talking to people. I mean, I know they'd rather not talk to me. You know, it's not necessarily a happy time. If a police car is behind me, I get nervous. You know, what did I do wrong? Is he going to pull me over if he does? Who does he think I am or what I'm doing? Now, it's a different experience for Stavante and I, and I know that. I mean, I recognize that. But when the cops talk to you, if they do so respectfully, they treat you like a whole human. I mean, I've walked up on entire groups of gang members. I've walked in the backyard Friday night parties in South L.A. Uh, I have always found if you treat people respectfully, if you give them the humanity they deserve, that if it's even like, hey, listen, you know, folks are complaining, you guys have to bring the noise down. That if you, know, if you do things the right way, these kinds of issues occur so infrequently, we can deal with them. Yeah. Versus like every Friday night, all sort, you know, the, there's so much going on, you, it's hard, tough to prioritize. But I, I do think, and I wanted to add on a couple of things. There are already alternatives out there on as examples. Uh, USC's uh, Price School has their Safe Communities Institute. Uh, they are just starting with, they've had one session with LAPD on game, uh, game Changers, which is out of San Diego, which is getting people t- together like this to talk, getting people to address problems and form things forward. You know, LAPD has a safe communities partnership that they deploy in four of the public housing projects. And it took a couple of years for the people to even trust the police enough to talk to them. But over four or five years of sustained effort, they're making some difference. Crime's going down. People have greater trust. So I have one question for both of you in terms of, you know, uh, a police being part of the community that they, that they serve. I was wondering about hiring uh, yeah. efforts because it feels like in the U.S. and even in California, mm-hmm. still the majority of police departments, the workforce is, is white, majority white. And I was wondering, what is the best way of getting more people of color into the police force? Uh, part two, that question is also like qualifications. I think, Bob, you wrote about this. And I've seen a lot of like memes about how other countries have certain qualifications for um, people to enter the police force, um, mm-hmm. you know, education, training, and the U.S. maybe doesn't compare as well. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering what, you're, what both of you think about getting, you know, um, the right people to serve the community that they best, that they serve to do it best. Mm-hmm. Um, what can, what should, uh, what should be done by the police force, you know, training the community itself, just your thoughts on that. Who'd like mm-hmm. to start? I'll start. I, I'll probably go. Bob. Okay. Uh, and, and I do agree. In fact, and one of the great struggles in policing is finding enough of the right kind of qualified people who actually want to do the job. Uh, interestingly, uh, we actually hire about two out of every hundred applicants. They, they go through psychological medical screening. They go to the academy. And there's a whole different discussion on how they're trained and how they're onboarded that we could have. But it's very selective already. And one of the great uh, areas of stress is, and, and it would even be a question for Stevante. 
how can the police recruit more effectively in the black community? How can they recruit more effectively in Latino, Hispanic, Asian communities? I've worked with the city of Westminster, which has the largest Vietnamese population in the world outside of Vietnam. And so their issue is how do we recruit more Vietnamese officers to bring in to reflect the community itself? Now there is an, you know, when I started in policing, which was way back, uh, I was, I'm six foot, 200 pounds. I was one of the smaller officers. Uh, I had, so I was one of the most educated and most were like World War II, Korean War veterans. And it was a blue collar job. It's a profession now. It's really tough. They have to be good at counseling, good at mediation. They have to be good at conflict resolution. They also have to be good at going down a dark alley to find someone who's got a gun that wants to kill them. And, and that's the part that keeps like most rational, sane people from going into policing is it's, it's a weird, tough job. Now, I do have, and in fact, I have data from LAPD, which, you know, LAPD has studied endlessly. Their population and, uh, you know, in fact, out of all their officers, uh, about 35% of their officers are uh, Caucasian white, 43% are Hispanic, 12% of the police force is black. So, I mean, I think they're doing a pretty good job if you look at the demography of the city of Los Angeles, but they're a large PD with a lot of resources to direct this kind of effort. The smaller police departments, I think, have more difficulty because they don't have as much reach. I think that, uh, and that would be, you know, to ask Devante, uh, you know, how can we be more effective? My sense is how we can be more effective is we get back to this core issue. If people have confidence in us and trust us, if they see the police officer as someone who's going to help make their lives better or to get through this tragedy, they're more likely to tell their kids, you know, you could be an officer like Officer Smith. You could be somebody who can really help the community this way. If they see him as an occupying army, you know, it's like they're the enemy. They're not going to, they're not going to sign up. All right, Stevante. So, yeah, let's, what's your response to the question? You know, how do we get more uh, My response is people? we have to start with number one, bridge the gap between law enforcement and at-risk communities. Then we have yes. to do number two, inform and educate on policy and legislative change. Then mm -hmm. number three, we need to provide healing and resources, or resources and healing spaces for those in need mm -hmm. in the community. We need to follow up. Mm -hmm. And then we need to commemorate lives like Stefan Clark, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant in a positive mm -hmm. light to prevent these, to show that there is a connection. We understand this happened. We understand you grieve. We understand this is wrong. What do we do now? And then we need recommendations from the people, the communities, mm -hmm from law enforcement to say, hey, how can we get our job better? What can we do? The recommendation from people yeah. how to prevent such atrocities from ever happening again. Not just yes. um, uh, Stefan Clarks and Trayvon Martins and Oscar Grants, but the domestic violence and child abuse and mm -hmm. hunger. And we need to come together and get recommendations on how to prevent these types of atrocities from ever mm -hmm. happening again on all levels. Mm -hmm. And then we need to start loving each other, spreading the gospel of love, everybody love everybody. John 15, 12 says, my greatest commandment is love each other as I have loved you. And if you skip down to John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you for it, know that they hated me long before they ever hated you. So we need to get back to love and know that prices have been paid for us to be here. And we need to not um, um, uh, disrespect the blood of our ancestors. There's no reason our, um, our white friends or whatever should uh, be uh, dealing with the sins of their forefathers. So, you know, I think we all need to get together for love and accountability on all levels. I love you, Chief Bob. Um, I think I can ask my question. Can I ask my question now for Chief Bob? Sure. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to end this conversation by having each gentleman ask each other a question. So, Stevante, you're up first. Okay, Chief. Yes. How many, I want to know, like... If the officers lived in Vacaville and this situation would happen in one of your backyards, would you have fired the officers? Yes or no? I haven't read the reports you have or seen anything beyond what's been in the public. Uh, in terms of the yeah, Have I seen you some stuff? Can you let me know? Uh, I can't. I mean, I don't want to get any confidential things no, from them. Gonna, it's all public uh, record. Everything's public record. Okay. It's all internet. I can send you some links and you can go send it. Look it up. Yeah, I looked up some anticipating. Uh, boy, I tell you, the question of the officers involved and what they did, uh, certainly termination is going to be on the table. Okay. You know, you, the, the pattern and practice is going to be important. The specifics of, and, you know, and the tragedy of as what the officers perceived, and I think under a Shirley standard of necessary. Okay. Was this necessary and the only choice in their minds? 
which creates a defense in their perception. But, you know, certainly termination would have to be on the table because it's, it's a lethal incident of police force. Yeah, I can accept that. Okay. Yeah. Any questions for me? Uh, no, I, I think the recruitment, we already answered that, that, that we create the trust. I did want to close with one thing, and it's not, it's not an apology for, but a recognition of empathy. And probably brought to light, uh, I believe it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, last weekend, an officer rolls to a call where it is a person who believe, he believes he has, needs a medical aid. He's collapsed in the middle of a Home Depot parking lot as the officer walks up and puts his hand on the shoulder. The guy spins around and shoots and kills the officer. Uh, this, the officer in Davis last year, the female officer, had the guy who just walked up and killed her. Uh, those, now, in a community of trust, those things will happen. And, and I fully agree with Stevante. If we resolve mental health and substance abuse, we're going to resolve a lot of homeless, homelessness and a lot of crime. But an empathy in, in all directions that, that as the cops are doing a tough job, there are people... I mean, sadly enough, and I've had personal experience that would like to just yeah. kill them. And I don't think that does anything but create greater fear and greater And, and Chief Bob, um, the, the, the black man in America is, mm -hmm. you know, we get certain things that happen to us early on where we're, we're uh, yes. incarcerated and thrown yes. in jail and whatnot. And that affects us getting uh, jobs as yes. we're able to join police departments. And in right. the black community, a lot of our elders have criminal records. Mm -hmm. and they also have um, they also have the influence to stop things from happening and yes. and all, and what I'm saying is that I think that if um, me and you and a, a few other chiefs and a few other actors have come together with mm -hmm. dialogue when it comes when it pertains to actionable items, mm -hmm. I think that'll be for that'll be positive moving forward to bridging the gap and, I, and, and I'm open yeah, I, for it and I and I'm, I'm inviting you thank you yeah, and I want yeah, you to I call do. all your chief friends as well. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna, put, I'm gonna put you two in touch, and I'm gonna. I do hope that this conversation is the first of many. I got a sense like there wasn't a lot of direct conversation between people, community, and police chiefs, or even former police police chiefs about these topics. So mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to do this. We could go on and on like we we talked about, but we're gonna wrap it up and and Thank call you. it hopefully Thank a good you, beginning. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Stevante. Thank you, Bob. And uh, you. have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This conversation with Stevante Clark and Bob Harrison about racial justice and police reform was recorded on July thirteenth, two thousand twenty. Thanks to both men for taking time to talk with us. Thanks also to Sacramento police officer Fillmore Graham, also known as Israel Graham, for letting us use his song, Be the Difference, that you're hearing for this podcast. Always thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing all of our podcasts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about how Californians are coping and keeping things going. You can do that as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.